dealing with a subject that we have held one position on in the past, and I'm going to teach a different position on that subject. I had intended for you church members to take up Luke chapter 22 this morning and to take up this particular subject tonight, but upon studying this particular subject, I wanted both services to deal with it today. Three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I preached two messages some of you might have thought were a waste of effort. Some of you might not have appreciated why I was preaching what I did and the way I did it. Three weeks ago, I preached that God's Word is an absolute source of truth, an absolute source of confidence, and that what men think, what denominations think, what tradition has taught us, what we feel good about, what we've practiced for 50 years or more, all of that is totally irrelevant, and not only is it irrelevant, it is most deceitful and ensnaring to the souls of men. We get into habits of doing things, we get into habits of thinking certain ways, in which we use those feelings to judge truth and error. Because we feel good about it, because we've always done it that way. You give me anyone in any religion, they feel comfortable with their religion because that's what their parents practiced, that's what they've practiced for a number of years, and we get into ruts. Men have always got into ruts. Jesus Christ came along and met the Pharisees, who were in some of the greatest ruts of all, and could only move a few of them by his miracles and by his persuasive preaching. We shall find out this morning how many of you honor God's word and a consistent use of that word above tradition. We shall find out. Some of you thought that the study of baptism and membership was a rather moot point, maybe. It wasn't all that important. Or maybe you thought it was easy to see. Or maybe you thought that it didn't really affect you very much. This one will affect some of you more. We shall find out if tradition and habit is your rule of faith and practice or if it's the Word of God. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I could start anywhere, but we'll start here. I'd like to read verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the Corinthian church, telling them to receive his son in the ministry, Timothy, who would bring them into remembrance of Paul's ways. Paul had taught the Corinthian church before because Paul was instrumental in establishing that church. Timothy was going to come behind him and do the maintenance work of being a pastor, and that is keeping them in remembrance of the things Paul had taught, which are the ways of Christ, as Paul taught everywhere in every church. The point I want to make from this text, and several more we'll look at in a moment, how do we determine public ordinances of New Testament worship? How do we determine what we should do in a worship service of the New Testament? How do we land on those few things God wants us to do when we assemble together like this in a public assembly and keep ourselves from the traditional ideas of men 
on what ought to occur in public assemblies. We do it by looking at the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of the Apostles, the book of Acts contains the Acts of the Apostles, show us what the Apostles did. The Epistles of the Apostles give us what the Apostles taught. So by looking at those books, we can see the practice and the teaching of Christ's Apostles. And who was the greatest Apostle of all? The Apostle Paul. Who was the Apostle to the Gentiles? Paul. Paul is the one we are to follow if we are to have proper New Testament worship. 1 Corinthians 4.17 told us, as I teach everywhere in every church. Churches of the New Testament are established by the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul was given to us because we're Gentiles. Peter and the rest preached to Jews only, except for a rare exception, the case of Cornelius. Their ministry was to the circumcision. Paul's was to the uncircumcision. We should keep that in mind. Look at chapter 7 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. We could run a quite a number of verses this morning looking, looking at the authority of the Apostle Paul for New Testament practice, but I'll give you just a couple. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Paul is the one that establishes ordinances for New Testament churches of the Gentiles. That We know that from this text because it says, and so ordain I in all churches. When you ordain something and you're a person in a position of authority, that is an ordinance. An ordinance is simply something God's commanded. It's something God has ordained for our observation. In 1 Corinthians 7, those ordinances happen to be how we deal in marriages with problems. And Paul's particularly talking about mixed marriages where you have a believer with an unbeliever. He comes right out and tells you in the middle, in the, around the 12th verse of this chapter that Jesus Christ never dealt with this subject, but I'll set it straight. And that is how you were to handle an unbelieving spouse in a New Testament church. That's a subject for another time. Look at chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. After spending 15 verses dealing with the subject of of hair on men and women. Men ought to have short hair. Women ought to have long hair. The apostle says in verse 16, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Paul establishes the customs of the churches of God. Men don't establish them. Tradition doesn't establish them. Denominational boards, associational boards, conventions, or otherwise, don't establish customs of the churches of God. The apostles do, and Paul in particular. Look at the first two verses of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. We are to follow the apostle Paul. We will follow the apostle Paul. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Not as Jesus delivered them, but as Paul delivered them, Jesus was a minister to Jews. Jesus instructed Jews on keeping Jewish ordinances. I can show you that. The New Testament church as we know it now wasn't even established when Jesus Christ was teaching. It hadn't reached its 
full existence yet until the day of Pentecost when the apostles laid the groundwork of what was to occur in a New Testament church. Whenever we read instructions given by Jesus Christ, they need to be understood in at least one of four senses. First of all, there's apostolic instruction. Look at Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. Now this is a text we've dealt with many times. Many of us have been badgered and beaten and had burdens laid on our backs on how we ought to respond to the 15th verse of Mark 16. And he, that is Jesus, said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Many of us have heard those words applied to Gentile Christians of the 20th century. Those words were given by Jesus to his 11 apostles, as verse 14 tells us, and they fulfilled those words. The apostles of Jesus Christ went into all the world. They did preach the gospel to every creature. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 10, Colossians chapter 1 prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt. There's Jesus giving instruction. But by looking at the epistles and the acts of the apostles, and by looking at the context, we know that that instruction was apostolic. It did not apply to second generation ministers like Timothy. It did not apply to their sons in the ministry like myself. It applied to the apostles and they fulfilled it because we read in verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, that is the eleven, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they, that is the eleven, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The apostles fulfilled that word of Jesus Christ. That word was to them, and they fulfilled it. Now look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, let's look at a command given by Jesus Christ that, we, that I just observed this morning. <coughs> Matthew 28. Did you know that there's only one place in the Word of God where we're told to baptize in the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? That's Matthew 28 and verse 19. Every occurrence of baptism in the book of Acts is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus told his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That text has to be understood in a sense of applying to the apostles and those to whom they gave authority to do the same work of baptizing. It doesn't apply to you because it wasn't given to a church. It was given to Christ's ministers who had the responsibility for baptizing. And the apostles transferred that authority for baptizing through the laying on of hands to other ministers of the gospel. That text applies to me. I can know that by reading the account of the apostles transferring that authority to other men. That is a ministerial text. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, let's find a Jewish ordinance that Jesus Christ established. We've seen an apostolic commandment that applied only to the apostles, a ministerial one that applies only to ministers. Here's a Jewish one, Matthew 23, verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. Now all of you this morning consider yourselves the disciples of Christ. Do you want to obey the next two verses? Saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. Now there is Jesus Christ instructing his disciples to obey the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the Jews were still bound to obey the scribes and the Pharisees until a certain veil was rent in twain and Jesus Christ established a new form of worship. He said, the hour is coming when the Father seeketh such that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And there was a rending of the Old Testament religion. There was a shaking of heaven and earth as Jesus Christ shook away those Old Testament ordinances and ushered in the kingdom of God, which is the worship of Christ under the ordinances of the New Testament. But here are ordinances. If you want to run back and take the words of Jesus Christ without explanation, you'll end up looking for scribes and Pharisees to obey because Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to do whatsoever they bid you to do. Now look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we've seen three categories, apostolic, ministerial, Jewish. Now here's a general one that does apply to the churches of Christ. And there's a way we can tell. Matthew 18, verse 15, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. These three verses outline church judgment of personal offenses in the New Testament. These verses are transferred to you by, the, by reason of the fact that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 takes the very same theme and confirms it by his ministry. Matthew 18 is not left to your imagination whether it's apostolic, it says the church. But the apostles didn't even have a church like we understand one to go to in this sense. Disciples were floating all over Judea in those days. They were not yet assembled into bodies practicing the Lord's Supper. No one knew what the Lord's Supper was yet. Christians didn't get together to keep the Passover because that was a Jewish ordinance in the same way that we would keep the Lord's Supper. The obligations and the bonds that we find described for us in the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul were not yet established. Jesus Christ said, tell it to the church. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first eight verses, the church is responsible to judge personal offenses among its members. They ought not to go before unbelievers to law. You can know that Matthew 18 is transferred by the fact that the apostle Paul confirms it for our use. You try to find me an ordinance applicable to the New Testament church that the Apostle Paul has not confirmed in his writings. The Apostle Paul confirms everything that we need to know for the practice of religion in a New Testament church. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 15, the apostle writes, the same man, our brother Paul, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul said, I don't care whether you got it from my vocal cords directly or you got it from one of my epistles. You stand fast and hold my tradition. What the apostle Paul taught is what we're going to hold as far as our church is concerned. In verse 6 of chapter 3, 
the same apostle writes again, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. We have to look to the apostles, and particularly the apostle Paul, to know how Gentiles ought to behave when they assemble in what we call a New Testament church. Jesus taught communion, didn't he? How do we know that we ought to have the Lord's Supper as we're going to have in just a few, a little while this morning? Some of you would question my definition of the word few if I said a few minutes. Jesus taught us the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When he identified wine as representing his blood and bread as representing his body and said that we ought to do this in remembrance of him. But do you know what? We don't rely on the words of Jesus Christ for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We rely on the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11 when he said, For the Lord Jesus delivered unto me that which I also delivered unto you. Because Paul shows us that we are to perpetuate that in Gentile churches. Jesus taught church judgment as we've just seen in Matthew chapter 18. Paul confirms it, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Jesus exemplified singing in the church. We read that after the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn and went out. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that was singing in the church. We come to Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says we ought to sing in our churches. If Jesus Christ taught it, it must be judged as either an apostolic instruction, a ministerial instruction, a Jewish instruction, or one that does apply to a New Testament church and then you will have the Apostle Paul teaching the same thing and confirming that it does apply to Gentiles in a New Testament church. Well, what's all that about, you're all asking? We're going to find out right now when I open my mouth and say one long word as to how many of you are going to be able to even hear the Word of God without letting tradition stop up your ears. Jesus, John the Baptist, the other apostles, Stephen... When they preached, the Pharisees stood there, and when they'd reached certain points, they would simply stop up their ears because they could not bear to have their traditions played with. We have practiced in the past in this church a certain thing called foot washing. We have not done it in several years. I want to show you from the Word of God that foot washing is not an ordinance of public worship. That the little ritual that we used to go through when we'd line up and pair off men on men, women on women, that's all tradition. Pair off, that's all tradition. And get a basin and do... And exchange foot washing. That's all tradition. Jesus never did that. There's never such a custom in the history of the world for people to pair off and exchange foot washing. Pairing off men on men, one at a time, is all tradition. And we made it a requirement of public worship that somewhere God expects us to come together in an assembly where we preach, where we sing, where we pray, where we observe His Supper, and we're also supposed to sit across from each other and pretend that we're washing feet. It is a pretense because you're not washing clean feet. 
clean feet don't need to be washed, as I'll show you from John 13. You say, well, it's a symbolic act. You show me one word in Scripture where Jesus ever said foot washing was symbolic. Foot washing is not symbolic. Foot washing is an actual act of service. It is a very real act of service when done properly. It is not symbolic. Baptism is symbolic. And guess what? Jesus and Paul taught us that it was symbolic. They said it was a figure. They said it was a likeness. Guess what? The Lord's Supper is symbolic. They both taught us that also. That we're to do that to remember something else, not the thing itself. Foot washing is not symbolic. Foot washing is a real thing. And what we have done in this church is not a real thing. It's a pretended thing. And it is so easy to do when you sit down from someone else and you know that everyone on the left and everyone on the right is doing the same thing. <laughs> no big deal. It's not a proof of anything. I want to tell you this. Ten days ago, brethren, on Holy Thursday, the great bishop of Rome himself, the man who declares himself to be above God, sat down and washed the feet of 13 common men. Now, he did the 13 feet in order to prove his humility. He washes the feet of 13 men to prove that he's greater than Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ only washed 12. Now, if you think that the public ordinance of foot washing teaches humility, think about that. Jesus walked... Listen, I'm going to be dealing with this at length. I've got uh, more material than we'll handle today. But I want you to follow with me. Jesus did wash the apostles' feet and he told them to follow his example. But where is any evidence that that lesson and that example was to become an ordinance of public worship required of all the members of all local churches? Jesus didn't give them some symbolic act. He didn't dip his two fingers in water and rub them together and say, this is a likeness of washing feet. He actually got down and washed dirty feet. We've never done that. Never. He didn't get down and wash Peter's feet and say, now that I've done that to you, Peter, do it to me so I won't feel so bad. And you won't feel so bad. He never did that. We never read of any women washing feet in an assembly of the New Testament church. How did it become an ordinance required in public assemblies? We don't even have any evidence that the apostles ever washed each other's feet. There is no evidence that the apostles ever washed each other's feet. To assume that from John 13 is to make a more fundamental assumption, and that is that Jesus Christ was simply teaching the ritualistic act of washing feet rather than a lesson. He said, I'm giving you an example, and we'll take John 13 this evening in depth. But there's a, there's a much easier way to understand foot washing than going to the instruction of Jesus and assuming it from his words. We are to go to the Apostle Paul and see what he teaches. And brethren, I've read Acts frontwards and backwards, and I've read the epistles of Paul to churches, and guess what? There isn't even an allusion to foot washing. Not even an allusion. Where in the New Testament? Why don't we read in the book of Acts of churches coming together to wash feet? Do we read of churches coming together to break bread? You bet we do. Do we read of churches coming together and hearing preaching? Do we read of churches coming together in fellowship? Do we read of baptisms taking place? Why no record of foot washing? 
When we look at the epistles of the apostles, that is, letters to churches, do we ever read about baptism? Indeed. Do we read about the Lord's Supper? Indeed, specific instructions on how to observe it. Do we read about how to regulate the speaking in tongues in the Corinthian church? We read all sort of detail on things that were to take place in public assemblies, but we don't read one word about the washing of feet as an ordinance of public worship. Well, in fact, you don't read about the washing of feet in any way whatsoever in the Acts of the Apostles or in the Epistles of the Apostles. It is a silent subject in those books. If you are going to run from John 13 with your basis for foot washing as a public ordinance of worship in the assembly of God, where do you get the understanding where to pair off and trade washings? If you're going to do it the way Jesus did, then we ought to draw lots and have one of you come forward and wash everyone's feet in here. If you don't like it that way, then we ought to draw lots and have one person sit up here and everyone washes feet. Where did where did, where did the idea even come from to line up chairs and pretend you're washing feet? You're not washing feet. Clean feet don't get washed. Did the women wash their feet? Or did men wash their feet? Or did women wash men's feet? Who made the distinction between men and women on that issue? I love these people who want to be literalists in John 13. They become great illiteralists as soon as they get out of John 13 and think about actually observing a foot-washing service. They start bringing in all their traditional excuses for how it must be done this way and this is okay and that's okay and they end up with nothing. You say, well, a woman would never wash a man's feet. I'll tell you one thing. In Luke chapter 7, John chapter 12, on two different occasions with two different women, Women came and anointed the feet of Jesus Christ with ointment and kissed his feet and bathed it in their tears and wiped those feet with the hair of their head. Where is there any evidence that a New Testament church of Gentiles should line up and pretend to wash each other's feet with, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. And that way we'll have satisfied John 13 and we are really great humble people. I know there's a lesson beyond foot washing, and I believe everyone in here knows there's a lesson beyond foot washing. But where is the Bible example of us establishing that act as an ordinance of public worship in an assembly of a Gentile church? That is the issue. I'll tell you, though, about a church that does practice it. And I want to quote... When you can connect a doctrine with Rome, it does not prove that it's an error. That should be obvious to anyone. It doesn't prove the point. But I'll tell you one thing. It sets off warning signals loud and clear. If you find a practice that is also held to by Rome dogmatically, it is a strong warning signal that you better take heed to that particular point of doctrine because the Bible says that Rome is the mother of abominations of the earth. And to exalt some ritualistic outward act of Jesus Christ as some binding obligation in public worship is Roman. And to miss the message, I mean, it is the Roman Catholic Church that says when Jesus said, this is my body, that he meant the bread turned into his body. It's the Catholic Church that thinks you ought to wear a cross around your neck and it will do you some spiritual good because Jesus died on a cross. The Roman Catholic Church is the greatest of all literalists. They like to take everything in the New Testament and run it literally. 
The book, My Catholic Faith, which is a theology of the Catholic Church, states, During the supper, our Lord washed the feet of the apostles. You couldn't prove that if you had the rest of your life to do it, that the washing of John 13 is in any way connected with the Lord's Supper. He did this to teach us humility. In commemoration, the celebrant of Holy Thursday Mass today washes the feet of 12 men after the gospel. After the washing of feet, our Lord instituted the Blessed Eucharist, offered the first Mass, and gave His apostles their first Holy Communion. Oh, now that sounds pretty, but find that in the Word of God. I was raised never having heard of foot washing, except what my mother told me to do on Saturday night so I could be acceptable at church the next day. Twelve years ago, I was taught that foot washing is an ordinance of public worship in a New Testament church and is an inseparable part of the Lord's Supper. That's what I was taught 12 years ago. About eight years ago, I was taught that it is no longer an inseparable part of the Lord's Supper. And I appreciated that further increase in understanding because all it takes is to read a little bit in John 13 and find out that the Lord's Supper was not connected with foot washing. Foot washing has nothing to do with the commemoration of the death of our Savior. Not anything whatsoever. We remember the death of our Savior by drinking wine that represents His blood and eating bread that represents His body, not by washing feet. I appreciate that eight years ago we lost some of the tradition and we were saved from considering the two events to be connected because they are not connected as we will shall see looking at John 13. It's great and interesting to see people take John 13 and want to run it literally. That Jesus, when he said, I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you, they take that and say, well, that means that you're supposed to wash feet by pairing up after a Lord's Supper and washing someone else's feet, then they wash your feet, and you've kept John 13. Look at Luke chapter 11. Let me give you a few examples of how these people are not consistent in their use of the Word of God. Luke chapter 11. I'm going to come back to these points because I think they're important for us to take a position on how we're going to use the Word of God. Are we going to be consistent or are we going to be inconsistent in order to support tradition? I'm speaking of a word, an 11-letter word, that some of you are probably cringing in your souls over because you have been raised from birth to think that it is an ordinance on par with the Lord's Supper and baptism, that it is an identifying mark of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Prove to me from the Word of God that any New Testament church ever practiced the washing of the saints' feet in that ritualistic ceremony that we used to observe. I know that I'm treading on the hearts and souls of some of you who have been raised a certain way. Can you quell the animosity that raises up in your soul because I dare tread on your tradition and listen to the Word of God? Luke chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, and so forth. When ye pray, say, 
I want to ask this of anyone who wants to advocate foot washing. Jesus said, I give you an example that you should do as I've done to you. And so they take it literally that we ought to make up foot washing. It's not real foot washing. We ought to make up some ritualistic ceremony that looks like foot washing. I want to ask this question of all those people. Jesus said, when you pray, say. Should we start quoting the Lord's Prayer every time we have an assembly? Are there churches that do that? Is there a great church that does that along with foot washing on Holy Thursday? Why aren't they literalists on that one? Just wasn't one of their traditions, I guess. Why aren't they literalists right here? If you're wise in the Word of God, you'll say because of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Look at Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, we have Matthew's account of the very same lesson. After this manner, therefore pray ye. You want to believe the exercises they go through. You ought to consider the exercises they go through with the word manner. After this manner, therefore pray ye. Well, listen, Jesus called foot washing an example. But they throw that word right out of John 13 to make it a literal. But they don't, because as soon as they get to observing it, they never do it the way Jesus did it. Why don't they want to quote the Lord's Prayer in every assembly? Why don't they want to pray the way Jesus said, pray after this manner, then he showed them how to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, he said, say these words. We understand that by giving a sense to the scriptures that in that prayer is embodied the things that ought, the principles of prayer, the things that we ought to include in a prayer. But to pray after those very same words repeatedly ends up being a vain tradition that heathens practice. Just like ritualistically dousing someone's feet in two inches of water and thinking you've washed clean feet ends up being a vain ritualistic show of an outward thing without the lesson that Jesus Christ taught. I want to ask this of anyone who advocates foot washing. Why don't you say the Lord's Prayer in your assemblies as a formal act of public worship? Jesus said, when asked how they were to pray, when you pray, say. Why don't they do that? Look at Romans 16. I've got another question. I shall prove from God's word that foot washing is not an ordinance of public worship. Right now, I'm simply giving you some things to think about before we look at our first passage. And you know there's only two. So we'll look at one this morning and one this evening. Romans chapter 16. I am going to be accused of departing from the Word of God for not literalistically observing John 13 in some pretended public form of worship by us sitting over a little basin of water and washing each other's feet. But I want to ask anyone who accuses me of that when the last time was they had a public kissing service. Romans 16 and verse 16. Romans 16, 16. Salute one another with an holy kiss. 
And you know I could read that three more times in Paul's writing and one time in Peter's writing. Five times the apostles said, when the brethren see each other, they are to greet one another with an holy kiss. Well now, we ought to have a kissing service. We ought to file out of our rows just like we have in the past and line up men on men and smack away. And call that keeping the Lord's commandments. Why don't they do that? Because they're liars in the word of God. They'll take what tradition has forced on them, what they were raised in, what they were ordained in, and they'll run John 13 literally, but you try to get them to run this literally. They'll get a kiss relegated to a handshake before you can turn around. Two examples. When you meet someone that wants to advocate foot washing, ask them two questions. Do you think we ought to quote the Lord's Prayer in our public assemblies in order to keep that commandment of Jesus Christ? Number two, foot washing doesn't even occur in the writing of, of the apostles, but kissing does five times, and that's a commandment. Salute one another with an holy kiss. Should we do that? Should we have a kissing service? Jesus never said to have a foot washing service. Should we have a kissing service? We've got a commandment. We better keep it. What do they do with that text? They understand that text to be a custom of their day, of an affectionate greeting to, to close friends or relatives, and it was to be done by the brethren in a church with holiness attached to it, and charity is Paul. I mean, as Peter uses the word charity to modify that kiss. It was a custom of their day, of greeting, even in the marketplace. Even Judas, when betraying our Lord, betrayed him with a kiss. Because it was such a common practice, he simply told the Romans, whoever I kiss, nab him, he's the one you're looking for. It was a common gesture of greeting, and that's why the apostle closes out four of his epistles by saying, salute or greet one another with an holy kiss. You're going to have to live or die with all three of these. I won't let you live with one and get rid of the other two. You're going to have to be consistent in the Word of God. We understand the Lord's Prayer to be an example of the form, to be an example of what we ought to include in our praying. We understand greeting here with a kiss. It is not a custom of our day to kiss. It'd be difficult for us to do it with very much holiness and charity. So therefore, we take this commandment here in Romans 16, 16 and in other places as re requiring of us and instructing us to show affection in our greetings and salutation and love toward one another. We don't get ritualistic and line up and peck on each other's cheek. That's not what the apostle had in mind. We know that. We know that he was simply encouraging them to perform toward each other like close friends did in that day. And we do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. I mean, we do the same thing with foot washing. We do the same thing with foot washing. Washing the feet of guests was a popular custom among the Jews and the neighbors of the Jews. If you were to go to the Middle East, most of you probably remember it from geography, it's a rather sandy place. It's a rather dusty place with a very dry and hot climate. In the days of Jesus Christ, in the days of Abraham, in the 2,000 years between them, they didn't have enclosed shoes like we have. They didn't walk around with a pair of socks on, a pair of enclosed shoes that would keep your feet clean. They either went barefoot or they wore open shoes or sandals. Because of that, when you had guests arrive at your house after a trip, their feet would be caked with dust. It was a common practice to provide them water for them to wash their own feet. 
Look at Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, 4. This is the Lord of glory appearing unto Abraham. Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifts up his eyes and three men are there to visit him. And we know that it's God by the conversation that takes place between them. And Abraham says to them in verse 3 of Genesis 18, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. Abraham provided water for the Lord to wash his feet. That was the practice of that day, on treating guests. You provided water for them to wash their own feet. Look at Genesis chapter 19, verse 2. Here are the two angels that appeared to Lot in the city of Sodom. And Lot said to them in verse 2, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. When they ate in those days, they reclined on couches differently than we eat. We sit on chairs. They reclined on couches. That's how a woman could approach Jesus Christ, stand behind him, and still wash his feet when he was reclining on a couch. If you were to put your feet on a couch, you wanted your feet clean. If you wanted to enjoy a meal, you wanted your feet clean. If you were going to go to bed, you wanted your feet clean. You didn't want them caked with dirt. It was one of the first things you did after a trip when you were going to relax and refresh yourselves. But notice, Abraham and Lot provide water. They didn't do the washing. They simply provided the water for these people to wash their own feet. Look at Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, verse 32. This is Laban with Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant's looking for a wife for Isaac. Verse 32, And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. He gave them water, to wash their own feet. There are only two men in the Word of God, that, there's only one man in the Word of God that we read of washing the feet of other men, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. The custom of the day was not to wash your guests' feet. The custom of the day was to provide them water for them to wash their own feet. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 to see this shown in the life of our Savior. I do not believe that John 13 was simply a custom of that day. It was more than that. But it was not an ordinance of public worship. Luke chapter 7. Jesus has eaten supper with a man named Simon. He was a Pharisee. And he says in verse 44, and he turned to the woman, this is the woman who's been bathing his feet with her tears, and said unto Simon, now he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. He didn't even give him the water to wash his feet. But she had... The point I've just tried to make is that from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Luke, the washing of feet of guests was a common practice. Jesus could rebuke a man for not having done it because he had neglected a duty. He, I mean, he could have provided water for the washing of feet in order to have shown kindness to the Savior. It was a custom of their day. 
We can show from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Acts that kissing, men kissing men, was a custom of their day. That's why when we read those five places in the epistles of the apostles, we understand they're speaking in context of a custom of their day. Keep that in mind. Now, I want to show you the first place you go to prove that foot washing is not an ordinance of the New Testament. The normal procedure for proving that it is, or trying to prove that it is, is to go to John 13, read the words, only worry about the words that have the word foot washing in them, then say Jesus taught his disciples to wash feet, and the disciples were to go and teach everyone else to wash feet. And do we have any evidence of that? We sure do. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10. So let's go to 1 Timothy 5.10. That's the normal order of things. I have an outline that I could have handed out this morning that I've prepared for members of this church in the past to prove foot washing to be an ordinance of public worship. I read last night a seven-page letter that I wrote to a family in this church attempting in single-spaced seven pages to prove that foot washing is an ordinance of public worship. And I'll tell you, that letter is a masterpiece. If anybody wants to hold a foot washing, I've got your material for you. It is a masterpiece on reasoning in the Word of God to establish something as an ordinance of public worship without dealing honestly with the text. I wrote it. I'm the one that was dishonest with the text, but I was dishonest ignorantly. I was simply defending something I had been taught. From the very first time I was ever shown 1 Timothy 5.10, I have had questions about its use to try to establish foot washing as an ordinance of public worship. 1 Timothy 5.10 is giving a list of qualifications for a widow indeed. The Apostle Paul begins those qualifications in verse 9 when he says she must be 60 years of age. She must have had only one husband. Verse 10, she must be well reported of for good works. She must have brought up children. She must have lodged strangers. She must have washed the saints' feet. She must have relieved the afflicted. She must have diligently followed every good work. The procedure is as follows. Jesus said foot washing in John 13. Jesus taught his apostles to teach the same things to others. We find the apostles requiring foot washing in 1 Timothy 5.10. So it all fits together. Jesus and Paul taught foot washing Therefore, we ought to line up across from each other. I'll wash your feet. You wash my feet. I know your feet are clean, but you know my feet are clean. And we'll call that foot washing, and we'll make it an ordinance of public worship, and we'll require it. It's not a duty that you ought to do. It's an ordinance of public worship. It's not an act of kindness and charity and humility and service that you do in your homes. It's a ritualistic ceremony that we'll do in our assemblies. Which takes a great deal of imagination to come up with that from John 13 and 1 Timothy 5.10. But I want to show you 1 Timothy 5.10 proves the opposite. 1 Timothy 5.10 will prove that foot washing is not an ordinance of public worship or it wouldn't be in this chapter. First Timothy 5, and I want to look at this because I think there's good material here for us. We'll try to be brief. But verses 3 through 16 are instructions for ministers. This is not instruction to a church. This is instruction to ministers on how they are to regulate the support of widows. 
verses 3 through 16, are the fin- is the financial support of widows. Remember in Acts chapter 6, there was a great problem in the church of Jerusalem because there were so many widows, the apostles couldn't take care of them all in the daily ministration. They, they were given a daily allotment of food for their sustenance. Therefore, deacons were elected, seven of them, to fulfill that obligation so the apostles could be left to prayer and the preaching of the Word of God. Paul comes along in 1 Timothy 5 and in verses 3 through 16 shows what rules a minister should use to determine what widows get this daily support from the church. The first point that I want to make is that Paul draws an important distinction between widows and widows indeed. Look at verse 3. Honor widows that are widows indeed. There are certain types of widows that are widows indeed that God considers worthy of a special place of honor. That's what the word is. A special place of honor and a special place of support in a New Testament church. Other widows are simply widows. There are two categories of widows. That's the first point. The second point he makes is that the family is primarily responsible for the support of widows. That's contained in verses 4, 8, and 16. In verse 4, if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite, that means to repay, their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If we were ever to have a widow in our congregation that had in this congregation sons or daughters or nephews, it's their obligation, first of all, to provide for that widow. The church isn't obligated to take care of a widow that has children or nephews or relatives in this assembly. They should be responsible for that. And so it says in verse 16, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. What is a widow indeed? Verse 5. She that is a widow indeed, and desolate, that means no family, trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. A widow indeed is a woman that gives herself to the service of Christ after the death of her husband. And in that service she is to be supported by the church. It doesn't take much to support a widow. We can read of a woman just like this in what book of the Bible? Luke, chapter 2. A woman named Anna. Remember, she had lived with a husband for seven years and had been a widow for about 80 years. And what does it say she did with her time? She was continually in the temple praying to God. This is is a widow indeed in verse 5. She that is a widow indeed and desolate, that means no family to help her, trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. Verse 6, But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. That's a widow that's not a widow indeed. That's a widow that says, Boy, I sure do miss my husband, but now I have the opportunity to do lots of neat things. I can go take a few courses at the local community college and do this and do that. That's not a widow indeed. That is a widow that doesn't get into the number. Because that widow is living in pleasure And she's dead as far as the service of Christ is concerned. Now, when a a woman's husband dies, she is not obligated to become a widow indeed. But in order for her to ever be supported by the church, she has to be a widow indeed. 
I hope you see the distinction. If your husband dies, and everyone in this room, I don't think we have any members in this congregation who are over the age of 60, if your husband dies, the Apostle Paul encourages you in the 14th verse to remarry if, if, it's obvious to you that you're going to be unable to do what Anna did. If it's obvious to you, you're going to be unable to do what a widow indeed would do. And the minute you say, I do, in that second marriage, you, per you forever cancel your right to support by the church. Because you have proved by that second marriage that you are unable to remain single and give yourself to the service of Christ. Let's look at, let's look at these qualifications in verse 9. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. Now that number there is not the number of the membership. Or that would mean we couldn't take a 55-year-old widow into our congregation as a member. That number is the number of widows that are supported by the church. That number is the number of widows indeed that churches are obligated to relieve. She has to be at least 60 years of age. Now that makes good sense. A younger widow will have a greater desire and need to remarry. A younger widow could more easily support herself. A younger widow is going to be tempted more by the things that we read about in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at them. Here's what young widows are tempted with. The younger widows refuse, that is, don't let them into the numbers supported by the church. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. If a widow has given herself to Christ, now that my husband has died, I don't want to remarry. I want to give myself to the service of the Lord. I want to be like Anna in Luke chapter 2. That's giving herself to Christ. But if after she's done that, she decides to go ahead and get married, that's waxing wanton against Christ. That's worrying more about her flesh than her spirit. You don't have to do that. But if you choose to do that, you better stick with your commitment. They will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. That is their commitment to serve Christ. And withal, having been married now, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. It's easy for a widow, either before she remarries or after she remarries, to, be, to engage herself in these sins and to get herself into trouble. So the apostles' recommendation for young widows who can't remain true to their commitment of faith to Christ is to get married in verse 14. And believe me, verse 14 will take care of any woman who doesn't have enough to do if she does it properly. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry. There's taking care of a husband. Bear children. That takes some work. Guide the house. That takes some more work. Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Younger women should get married and get busy. Have kids. Have a house full of kids. Take care of your husband. You won't be tempted with the things in verses 11 through 13. Let's go back now and look at the qualifications. She better be 60 years of age. The apostle gives us great wisdom in that number. A widow younger than that will be tempted to these things. One over that, you can be relatively convinced that she's not going to be tempted to these things. So the first requirement for a widow, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. Any widow under 60 years of age cannot be considered a widow indeed and supported on a daily basis by the church. That does not mean there is no place for gifts of charity to a 45-year-old widow. We are talking about daily ministration. We are talking about perpetual support of a widow 
who can forget about all financial concerns and give herself to the service of the church and of Christ. She has to be 60 years of age. Now, what if a widow came that was the most righteous spiritual woman you've ever seen in your life, but she was 55? What would we do? We'd tell her to support herself. Or you as individuals could support her, but the church does not support her. She does not get into the number. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years of age. That is the word of God. That's how we would observe it. Qualification number two. Having been the wife of one man, a widow that is to be treated as a widow indeed cannot have remarried. To remarry shows that she has, she does not have the ability to remain faithful to Christ, but that her flesh is going to tempt her to want to remarry. A widow indeed is a very special woman. A widow indeed is a woman who has the Spirit of God like the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 40 when he said in his opinion, and he said, I think I have the Spirit of God, it is better for a woman to remain single when her husband dies. Now, if your husband dies, women, you are at liberty, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, to remarry only in the Lord. But Paul said, I think it's better if you remain single. And he said, I think I have the Spirit of God. You're at liberty to do it, but it's better. It's a higher calling if you can do without it and give yourself to the service of Christ and His church. Paul taught that in 1 Corinthians 7. There is no contradiction with verse 14 right here. Verse 14 is for young widows who are going to be tempted with the attraction of verses 11 through 13. Therefore, he encourages them to remarry. If they can't abide in this calling, in this act of faith, in this commitment of faith to Christ, and they ought to remarry, have a bunch of kids, and keep a house. It'll keep them occupied and busy. They won't have to worry about anything except staying ahead of the laundry. But there's a special group of women in this world who marry and are loyal to one man even after he's died and do not remarry but give themselves to Jesus Christ. And Paul said, she's been the wife of one man. If she's remarried, She's thrown herself into a group that shows they have needs to marry and therefore can't give themselves to the service of Christ. Can I, I want to run a little rabbit here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it gives the qualification for a bishop. He must be the husband of one wife. Is that the same terminology as 1 Timothy 5, 9? This is how, this is interesting Bible study. 1 Timothy 3, 2. A bishop then must be the husband of one wife. It says here of the widow, having been the wife of one man. The qualification for a bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 is that he's only married to one woman. It is a condemnation of polygamy. Polygamy was rampant in Corinth and the other cities of the New Testament world. But deacons and bishops were not to have more than one wife because they were to exemplify what Christ ordained in marriage, and that is one man, one woman. In a New Testament church, you might have half the congregation sitting there with multiple wives. Polygamy was rampant. The Jews had married multiple wives since the days of Abraham. Let him be, present tense, the husband of one wife. Can you follow that? Look at chapter 3 and verse 2. A bishop then must be. All the qualifications for a minister are present tense. 
If you make the qualifications for a minister past tense, there's no such thing as a qualified minister. You want to take the Apostle Paul on as an, and as, as an example? Was he given to hospitality? <laughs> Hailing men and women into prison? He was a blasphemer of Jesus Christ. Is that being blameless? But after conversion, you look at a man and present tense in his life, what is he? Those are the qualifications for minister. I've taught that before. Verse 2 of chapter 3. A bishop then must be, present tense, blameless. Be, present tense, the husband of one wife. Be, present tense, vigilant. Before his conversion, he might not have been very vigilant. Before his conversion, he might have been a fool instead of being sober. It's the present tense character of a man to be placed into the ministry. That is a condemnation of polygamy. But when we come over to 1 Timothy 5, 9, where we're talking about widows, it is not let a widow be the wife of one man, because she couldn't be the wife of one man. The poor man's dead. So she couldn't be his wife. It's having been the wife of one man, which lines up with what the Apostle Paul said. I think I have the Spirit of God. I think it's better if a woman remains single. 1 Corinthians 7.40 It's past tense. If you make this present tense, then it's a condemnation of polyandry. And there is no place in the New Testament or the New Testament world that anyone had ever heard of polyandry. That's a woman with more than one husband. There are only a few dark, ignorant tribes in certain parts of the world that have ever thought of such a thing. In the New Testament world, it was unheard of, unknown of, and would never be tolerated, even in the imagination of women. It's not a present tense common condemnation of polyandry. It is a requirement that for a widow to be a widow indeed and to be supported by the church in service to Christ, she has to show fidelity to one husband and fidelity to Christ without remarrying because the remarriage shows she's got desires of the flesh that are greater than her ability to bear them. Now, what if we had a 65-year-old woman come in here, the most spiritual, righteous woman you've ever seen in your life, but she's been married twice? Does she fit the number? She has been the wife of two men. Let's keep going. Requirement number two. And there's a lot more material on the issue of having been the wife of one man, but we'll leave that for another study. A widow must have a public reputation of good works. Well reported. She has to have a great reputation of good works. The point I'm making right now is this. We are going to find a list of qualifications here in verses 9 and 10. These qualifications are not public ordinances of public worship that are true of all the members of a church. Are you with me? If these things were public ordinances of public worship that every member of a church had already fulfilled, they would not be limiting qualifications to separate a widow indeed from regular widows. Are there widows in a church less than 60? Are there widows in a church with more than one husband? Are there widows in a church? Could there be widows in a church that don't have great reputations for good works? Oh, indeed, most church members aren't going to have great reputations for good work. I wish they all had that. Well reported of for good works. She has to have a good reputation. Remember the men that were chosen to be the deacons in Acts chapter 6? Well reported of of good reputation, of good report, the Bible says. They're to have. Be think about it. If the church is going to support a widow 
and provide her permanent financial support so she can serve Christ. People are going to be giving their money for that widow to live on their living. In order for her to serve Christ, they'll want her to be of good reputation because only a good reputation will justify the giving of funds. Move on. If she have brought up children. A widow indeed must have brought up children. Any woman without character can bear children. Women without character can bear children. This doesn't say if she have born children. It says if she have brought up children. Do you know what this requires? This requires for this 60-year-old widow, the wife of one man in her lifetime, who is well reported up for good works, to have brought up children. It doesn't say anything about them being her own children. It doesn't say anything about giving birth to children. It says having brought them up. If you meet a 65-year-old woman who's the most righteous and spiritual thing you think you've ever met, she's only been married to one man, she's well reported up for good works, but in her lifetime she never brought up children, she shows a spirit that is contrary to God and nature. There are more orphans than there are people to take them. And especially at that time in the world, the Romans were notorious and the Greeks were notorious for throwing out unwanted children. They always had an opportunity to raise other children, to bring them up. Now this bringing up children, does it simply mean to feed them Wheaties in the morning and provide four groups of food at their dinner plate? Or does bringing up children mean to teach them in the way that they should go and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? This is a phrase describing proper child training. And if a woman hasn't given herself to the care and love and affection and training of children, and she's now 60 plus years of age, she shows a spirit that is contrary to God and nature. It is her obligation to have brought up children. That's what God created women for in addition to serving men. They are to have compassion on children. And a woman worthy of permanent support to give herself to Christ should have manifested her nature by wanting to care for children and bring them up. That is, bring them up in the way they should go. Would there be women in a church who might not have brought up children in a very good way? Would there be widows in a church who never brought up children at all? Yes. Would there be widows in a church who might not have done a very good job of it? This text does not mean Wheaties and supper. This text means what the Bible means when it says bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That would require a minister to judge among widows whether one's worthy of that or not. Some widows in a church might have done it. Some widows in a church might not have done it. Next qualification. If she have lodged strangers. This is a requirement for a widow indeed. If she, when she's had opportunity, have taken strangers into her house and shown acts of hospitality. Saints of God are to be given to hospitality. A woman who's going to give herself to the service of Christ and be supported by the church should most definitely have shown a spirit of hospitality during her life. She should have shown an addiction to it. She should be given to it. She should have lodged strangers as she had opportunity. That does not mean inviting your friends over for supper. That means lodging strangers, putting up strangers either in your house or somewhere else by your means when someone comes to town that you don't know very well. Would there be widows in a church that had done that? There should be. Could there be widows in a church that had not done that? Yes. Next phrase, next qualification. If she have washed the saints' feet. Washing the saints' feet is set forth by Jesus Christ in John chapter 13 
as the lowest, the greatest example of humble service has this woman washed the feet of the saints that have been in her home? Has this woman shown by that act or by other acts equal to it the humble, low service that God expects of His saints? Could there be members in a church that had not done this? If this is an act of public worship, this whole section has just become absurd. Or that phrase, at least, has become absurd. To say, if she washed the saints' feet, and what Paul intended to Timothy was, if she ever lined up with the rest of you guys, when you pulled out the basins and poured two inches of water in the bottom, and she did somebody else's feet, then they did her feet, when both feet were clean and you called it foot washing, that wouldn't make a bit of sense. Why doesn't the apostle add to that, if she believe on Jesus Christ, if she's repented of her sins, if she's been baptized, if she takes the Lord's Supper. Those are public ordinances true of every member in a New Testament church. They wouldn't limit the widows down to a select group of widows indeed. The, by virtue of the fact that foot washing is mentioned here, by virtue of the fact that foot washing is in this list, it proves the church didn't practice it generally. From the first time I ever read 1 Timothy 5.10, I had trouble with that. Read that text with its plain understanding, and it is proof that foot washing was not an ordinance of public worship. Otherwise, he wouldn't even have to ask, because they all would have done it. It doesn't belong in that list if everyone did it. These are private, domestic, personal, individual duties that are required of special saints. They're required of all saints. But you show me the saint that's going to have done all these. It's going to be a very unusual woman. It's going to be a woman like Anna who spent 80 years in the temple serving God night and day with fastings and prayer after her husband died. That's a special woman. These characteristics are of a special woman. She not only provided water for her guests to wash their feet, she washed their feet in the example that Jesus Christ gave of humbly serving the saints of Christ. Notice it does not say strangers. She is not obligated to have washed the feet of strangers. She's obligated to have washed the feet of saints just like Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did not wash the feet of strangers. He washed the feet of his saints. Familiarity breeds contempt in a church of Christ. You know, we get familiar with each other and we don't think of stooping low to serve someone in a special way like washing their feet. But Jesus did it, and He said, I've given you an example that this is the way you're to treat each other, and this woman was to have done it, to show by this act of humble service the character of being a widow indeed and worthy of church support. If she have relieved the afflicted, if this widow has diligently gone to serve the needs of those in need, maybe she's visited some in prison to give them food, maybe she's prepared garments like Dorcas for widows, Maybe she's gone to orphanages to provide them food and clothing. She's relieved the afflicted. The Bible tells us that's pure religion. That's what God expects of us each individually. But in a given church, there are strong members who will be known for it, who will have reputation for it. There will be weak members that don't have a reputation for it. There'll be weak members that haven't done some of these things. And that's why we're in a church, to exhort and to provoke all of us to be doing these things and other things like these. 
But these are private, individual, domestic duties, not public ordinances. If she have diligently followed every good work. We're to look at her diligence to see if every opportunity she's had to do something good for the saints of Christ and for the cause of God and for the welfare of her neighbors, she's done it with due diligence. If she's done that, then she is a widow indeed. What did Abigail say to David when David said, I want to marry you after her husband died? Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 41 said, Basically, I'm not worthy to be your wife. Just make me a servant to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. She said, just make me a servant to wash the feet of the rest of your servants. Now, that's as low as you can get. That's the lowest statement a woman could ever make of her humility and submission and service to a man. Guess what? Jesus Christ did the same thing. He washed the feet of his servants. Guess what he expects the rest of us to do? To treat each other the same way by that example. And someone will say, well, what he wants us to do is to wash feet. Well, then why don't you stand up and start quoting the Lord's Prayer? Or why don't you stand up and let's line up and have a smooching service? The sense of John 13, as I'll prove tonight rather easily by looking at the, looking at the whole passage, is an example of the treatment we are to give each other. We are to lower ourselves off our mighty thrones and get down and exalt each other and serve each other in the most humble, degrading ways that we, as we have opportunity. And to show great character, we should be doing that. And the great example of it is washing feet. And Paul simply summarizes it all under the requirement if she's washed the saints' feet. If she's been known for low and degrading service to the other saints of Christ, she's fit to be a widow indeed and supported by the church. The strict custom of the day, and this is not a custom of the day. The custom of the day was to provide water for the washing of feet. This is beyond the custom of the day. This is a special effort on the part of a person to serve another. And this woman was to do that and to show by that the character of deserving support by the church. When we look at the qualification, let me just try to summarize what we've done in 1 Timothy 5. Paul's writing to a ministry. He's not writing to a church saying, make sure all your widows wash feet with the rest of the congregation. He's writing to a minister saying, here's how you qualify a widow for support. He also tells that minister how to qualify men for the ministry. The qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, are they true of all the members in a church? Could they be true of all the members in a church? Then they wouldn't serve any purpose, would they? If they were true of all the members in a church, how would you isolate those special men called by God to be ministers? How would you isolate w widows that are widows indeed out of the general class of widows to be supported by the church? By those qualifications given in 1 Timothy 5, by virtue of the fact that the washing of the saints' feet is listed there, it is not a proof that foot washing ought to be done as a public ordinance. It is proof that foot washing was not a public ordinance. But it was an example of how Jesus Christ treated his servants and how we were to get off our high horses and treat each other. And this woman, she was to have acts of hospitality, lodging strangers, acts of service, washing the saints' feet, acts of charity, relieving the afflicted, all the things that make a spiritual, godly woman worthy of such care. She was to have all of those true of her. 
And the washing of the saints' feet is simply a very short expression describing a custom of their day, but beyond that custom, that characterizes a person willing to serve in a low and humble way. How do we handle that today? What if we had a widow? Would we have to tell her when she's 59 and a half that she better go wash a couple saints' feet in order for to be included in the number when she turns 60? Or do we understand that the same way we understand the Lord's Prayer and greet one another with an holy kiss, that it was a custom of their day pushed to an example of humility, and that if a woman has acts in her life characteristic of submissive service to the saints of Christ, she qualifies by that expression. How have you qualified by the expression, salute one another with a holy kiss? How have you qualified, pray after this manner? How have you qualified? Those are commandments of our Lord. Notice that there's nothing mentioned in here of baptism. Why isn't it mentioned? All widows would have been baptized. Why isn't the Lord's Supper mentioned? All widows would have observed the Lord's Supper. Why isn't singing in the church mentioned? All widows would have observed singing in the church because the church did it as public ordinances, obligatory on the entire body. Everything mentioned in here by definition cannot be an ordinance required of the entire body or it wouldn't serve its purpose, just like the qualifications for bishops and deacons. You say, but aren't we taking a verse of Scripture, if she, aren't we taking a phrase of Scripture if she have washed the saints' feet and modifying it for our day and age? We're modifying the specific thing stated, but what about the specific service intended? What about the example intended by those words? We're not modifying that. And what we're doing there is no worse than when we read, Honor the King. Does that mean we look around the globe until we find a king that we like and we honor him? Or do we transfer king to president, to Congress, to Constitution, or to whatever form of authority exists in our government, and we honor that? How do we keep the precepts about servants obeying masters and masters treating servants well? Don't we apply that to employer and employee? Although in a strict sense, they're not master and servant. How do we keep the rules applying to eating meat offered to idols? Do we look around for someone that, keeps, that has an idol in his backyard and puts meat out there once a week in order to avoid offending him? Or do we apply that to situations in our day and age? You know the answer to those rhetorical questions. We take the context of the New Testament. They had idols and meat offered to idols. They had kings. They had dusty feet after traveling, and they washed those feet. And we apply those things by principle to how we practice the same religion today. And if we had a widow who had shown by submissive service and humble service to the saints of Christ and met the other qualifications in this list, she could be and would be included in the number of saints that this church would support. Brethren, that is the text that is used to defend it as taught by the apostles as an ordinance of public worship. That is the text used to teach it as an obligation on all the saints of Christ as part of public worship. It teaches the opposite. Why isn't there any record in the book of Acts like I've already stated? Why isn't there even a hint of the apostles washing each other's feet or of them washing anyone else's feet or of any church members washing feet as a public ordinance? We know about the Lord's Supper. We can read examples of churches coming together to break bread. We can read instructions on how to break bread. 
We can read of people being baptized. We can read instructions on what baptism means. But why none of that for foot washing? And I ask you all, the way that we have done it, the way that you've seen it done, where'd they get those ideas? Pair off. Jesus didn't do that. You know, you wash mine, I'll wash yours. Now that's pretty neat, isn't it? That's an easy way around the whole lesson of John 13. Jesus got up from the place where he was sitting, took off his garments, wrapped himself and girded himself with a towel, and went around one by one and washed their feet. And Peter happened to be in the midst, as we'll see tonight in John 13. But we don't we didn't do that. We didn't do that. What about men and women? Where did those traditions come from? As soon as someone tries to make John 13 an obligation of New Testament worship, then they are forced to come up with further adjustments to fit it into our day. And no longer is it actual foot washing because everyone's feet are clean. It turns into a ritualistic ceremony that's supposed to be symbolic, but Jesus Christ never intended it to be a symbol. Jesus Christ intended it to be a real act of service. As long as it existed in our climate and in our day, with our shoes, it's not an act of service. We don't do it. There are other things that we can do that are humbling acts of service toward one another. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning.